Kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The master scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That king then speaks. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And now we apply. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. It's good to remember when we assemble that we do represent the Lord Jesus Christ and we come together to celebrate the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the right way to think about the war that rages. It's a war of ideas. There is an enemy. He is attacking us very actively. It's not the war that was back then in the Bible. It's the war that was been, has been raging since the first human beings were on planet Earth and we encountered the serpent who deceived the woman and... Uh, after, in the aftermath is that we're all under this curse and we're all uh, struggling against the sin nature and we're having to combat our enemy, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, but we do this in the context of victory because the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. We do have eternal life and we do have a clear statement from him about what he expects of us. He wants us to walk with him in the light. He wants us to walk with him uh, worthy of the calling with which he's called us. He wants us to be pleasing to him in every respect. And as Paul says, he wants us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the problem with us is sometimes we don't. That's not good news. The good news is that Jesus paid for those sins. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you as a believer priest need to come to the Lord with your hands clean, as James says. John says it this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this cleansing is vital, the way I understand our relationship with God. Before the resurrection, we are going to struggle with the sinful nature. And we will have this war, the inner struggle between the flesh and the Holy Spirit until we meet our Savior uh, and we're free from the, this body of corruption, as Paul says. And so what we do about that right now is when we commit personal sin, well, first of all, don't do that. You know, stop it. Don't, don't be involved in personal sin. But don't pretend like you haven't. This is the way it works in time. The things that you've done, you really did. You can't say, well, that was the flesh. That was you submitting to the flesh. And so what we do when we commit personal sins, having committed them, in the present, I come to realize, and as David was aware of his sin, we name them, we, we confess them to God. And that homologeo, to name the sin, to confess it, is to cite the case. It is le- legal language, as in like a courtroom situation where I am agreeing or saying this is the specific truth about what I have done. That is an important thing about ourselves, telling the truth Now, with that is an intention to be filled by the Spirit. There's an intention to receive forgiveness of sins. I want God to know just how sorry I am, but it doesn't say feel sorry for my sins. It's something much, much more basic and fundamental. Just tell the truth to the God of truth who already knows so that we are all telling the truth. And that's 1 John chapter 1. It's the solution for breaking fellowship with God, and I always want you to be mindful of the need to be in fellowship, to walk in fellowship with God, and uh, personal sin breaks that. So let's take a moment for silent prayer so that we can re-engage that walk by the Spirit if we have submitted ourselves to the lust of the flesh along the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and its complexity. 
ever calling us to deeper and deeper engagement with you in the terms that you've set forth through the apostles and prophets. Help us know you better as we consider your son what it is to walk worthy of our calling tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's really uh, common in evangelical God talk to talk about the walk. How's your walk? What's, you know, the walk of the believer? And um, I say God talk, and I usually don't mean that in a good way. Oh, it was just great to be here, and I just, I'm fire for Jesus, and uh, yeah, amen, brother, and, and it's such a blessing. And um, there's a lot of God talk, and sometimes it's sincere, and sometimes it's not. And then depending on the community you're in, it could be the, the, the thing that you're supposed to do, because we're Christians. Christians just talk like that, and we have to, uh, hallelujah, and amen, and praise the Lord, brother, and all that. And um, we try to not be um, phony about anything we do. Hallelujah is a, is a Hebrew word. I love when Christians say hallelujah because I love Hebrew. You're speaking Hebrew when you say hallelujah, and it's really, really mysterious what this Hebrew word means, hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. <laughs> praise Yahweh. That's what it means. So um, I like it. You know, I like to, to praise God, and, um, um, but, and I think we must, and this is our call in our lives, but um, I am hesitant about phony. I really don't like the phony God talkery. And um, I do like to learn to speak biblically from how the Bible talks about things. And you know, you can translate from Greek into English. You can translate the thoughts from Greek into English. And we're doing a little study here on the concept of the Christian walk, the Christian, the believer's walk. And I, I had a fun insight from this, uh, trying, to, trying to set up this introduction today, um, about the Christian walk. We talk about it like it's a noun, the walk. Hey, brother, how's your walk? I tried to find it as a noun. Now, I might have failed. But I couldn't find the noun for the word walk. I even looked it up in the dictionary, the Greek lexicon. I looked it up as an English word and a literal word-for-word translation for walk and go try to backtrace it and see where the word walk occurs. You know, in, a, in English, we go for a walk. It's really not a, a Greek or Hebrew idiom, the walk. That's a fun grammatical insight I have for you from a biblical perspective. But what we find all through the New Testament is that we're commanded to walk. And so we are walking and walk worthy of your calling in the command to walk. And this comes from the, in the New Testament. It's coming out of the Hebrew mind because the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. And everywhere you, uh, I mean, everywhere through the Hebrew Bible, there's this really common word for walk, halak. That's a hey, lamed, kaf. And it occurs in all its different permutations of the different inflections in Hebrew, but halak. And um, a lot of times it's correctly translated go. To go. Like it isn't necessarily that you're walking. Like we would, we have to use the word walk to mean I'm not driving and I'm not riding. I'm not scooting. I'm not skating. I'm walking. It's the, you know, bipedal way of perambulation. But in Greek, I'm sorry, in Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, it means to go because that's how you go everywhere. You walk. And what's interesting to me is um, when you want to address it as a noun, the walk, it's the path you're on. It's the road. Road, way, path. Derek is the most common Hebrew word. And um, way is also used in the New Testament, pulling out of this Hebrew idea of the, 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 the road of your life, the path that you take. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so uh, the Christian walk, uh, as we saw last Wednesday, has a lot of different ways it's described. The, 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 the walk of the Christian way of life, a lot of ways it's described, but whenever you use this word walk, it's active. And I want to just say that, that this thing is not a static situation where we just get into a routine or a rut and we just kind of go through the same motions. That is what happens in all religious endeavors 
eventually people settle into routine and they just go through motions and we're in this static situation. But I, I think that we're commanded to walk in the Christian life because it's dynamic, because it's advanced, because it's motion, because it is this thing that you'll never rest fully from this until your fight is over, until you're done running the race. And it's a marathon and it can feel grueling at times. <clears throat> but tonight I want to talk about the relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ as the focus of our discussion on walking in the Gospel of John. Walking in the Gospel of John. And I want to take you to the first place and the only place I can find it as walking after Jesus, walking to follow Jesus or walking with Jesus. The only, again, I could, I'm, I'm not saying I've done a comprehensive, exhaustive study. I'm saying in the time that I had with the tools that I have, to find walking with Jesus as a phrase that is used in the New Testament for the Bible's talk about the relationship with God, to walk with Jesus is a very interesting verse reference. It's John 6, verse 66. <laughs> Why don't we turn there tonight? John 6, 66. You know, they don't ever name the 13th floor in the building, right? They, they call it the 14th floor. You would have thought they would have skipped verse 66 and called it verse 67. Well, what happened to verse 66? No, they went ahead and, and named it. Now, I don't worry about the numbers of the Bible, the numbers of the verses of the Bible, because those are human additions to long discussions. But to find it and to be able to reference it, they put the numbers in, the verse numbers in, and uh, they can be helpful for that purpose for reference. But anyway, the verse saith, as a result of this, many of Jesus' disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They didn't walk with Jesus anymore. And that is one of the tragic conclusions of um, one of the great statements of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the Gospels. In John chapter 6, Jesus is the bread of life. And that's the first of Jesus' big I am statements. He has seven major statements in the Gospel of John where he identifies himself as God in a special linguistic way. He says, ego eimi. Ego is the Greek pronoun, I. Eimi is the Greek verb, which we would say is to be. But when you say eimi in Greek, it's I am. It's the first person singular, present active indicative, to be, I am. So in other words, if I say a me in Greek, I'm saying I am, E-I-M-I, a me. I'm saying I am if I say it in Greek. But if I say ego a me, I'm saying I am. Ego a me. It's a strong way of emphasizing who is speaking. And it's unnecessary. Listen carefully. In Greek, you don't say the subject you don't give the, the subject pronoun before you give the verb. In English, you have to. to. For me to say that I am something, I have to use the pronoun I and the verb to be I, I am. But in Greek, you don't do this. En français, you say je suis. You don't say suis. You say je suis, I am. But in Greek, you don't have to say je. You don't have to say I. You just say me. The, the, the pronoun is in the verb. So when Jesus, seven key times in the Gospel of John, it's in red letters, folks, when he says, I am, he is identifying himself as the creator. He is right back with us to Exodus 3 and Moses saying to God, the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. This is deity. You cannot embrace the gospel of John in its nuances and fail to see the deity of Christ, though I know some who will try to do that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to John chapter 8. We'll go back to John 6 in a minute, but 858. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to wait for everyone to get to John chapter 8, verse 58. Those of you with the ability to hear the English words I'm saying, John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, before he became Genemai, and so they translate was born, but it's before Abraham was, ego eimi, I am. It's not on the board, no. Our visual tonight is a casualty. Y'all pray for me. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, the way I know to reinforce what I think from Exodus 3 and what he's doing with this construction in Greek is what they did as a result of him saying that. Because this is the end of where we're going to go tonight. But at the end of him saying this long discussion that he's from God the Father, and before Abraham was, I am, they try to kill him. Because they get it. He's saying, I was in the burning bush. I've been from of old, Micah 5, 2. My comings are going forth are from eternity. I am that I am. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In that verse 58 of John 8 and 59, you have light and darkness. The light is Jesus' proclamation that you would know God through him. And he came to show us who God is, to reveal the Father. And that's a big point that, John make, that Jesus makes through the Gospel of John. The world's reaction to this revelation is, is darkness. And that's verse 59. They don't like what he has to say. They're not interested, and they reject it. And you see the same thing back in John 666. Jesus has taught them that he is, I am, the bread of life. He explains to them that for them to have a relationship with God, they have to eat him and drink him. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not a not a hint and an eye wink to the Roman Catholic confession and the idea of transubstantiation. That's not that was not in John's thinking or in Jesus' thinking when that was written. It has nothing to do with literal flesh and blood. It has to do with what you do with the person and work of Christ. And if you're not, and and it was a test. The people, I'll just summarize what happens in John 6. The people hear this message that they have to drink his blood. And these Jewish people say, how can we tolerate this message? And the answer is, you have to hear it in the sense in which it's meant. That the lawgiver who says no drinking of blood is, is, is not contradicting himself, right? And it, it's a test for if they're believing him, and they're not. They're doing the thing that Eve did in the garden. They're seeing if he's good. They're testing him based on their reasoning and understanding. Well, this would contradict our tradition of not eating flesh and drinking blood. So that, See, they're not listening to him and taking him as the, the, the lawgiver. And that's the test in John 6. Jesus said to the 12, do you, you don't want to go away also, do you? In verse 67, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we're not doing a good job. We find out later through the story. But we are taking notes, right? We're not going to remember much of this, apparently. <laughs> but we're, we know who you are and what you're bringing. We get it. Our eyes are open to the light. The darkness hates the light. But we get it. There, that's the, the co- comparison that John is re- recording here. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is Diabolos? Did I not choose you myself, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon, Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And I, I want to just pause here and, and challenge you with something that might be different than what you've heard or thought. A disciple means a believer, and a believer means a disciple. Judas Iscariot is listed among the disciples. He is not a believer. That's not a problem for anybody in church history until very recently some have said, no, no, Judas has to be a Christian or a believer. And, and, but he, was, you know, he, was, he got in trouble and, and he, got, he, he lost his way. Judas is a son of perdition. 
He's identified with hell, with the retributions coming on Satan and his fallen angels and all those that follow them. Judas is not a believer, but he was a disciple because disciple means student. But see, um, the discipleship that we're called to embrace begins with baptism. And that's the end of a process of someone actually becoming a believer and then proclaiming it. And then they continue to study and be a student, Matthew 28, by learning all that Jesus commanded. And so make that distinction. Disciple doesn't mean believer, but of course it's supposed to. So don't, Judas isn't a mystery. It's just that we get sloppy with our categories sometimes and we have to rightly handle, rightly divide the word of truth. He's not saying that Judas is a believer. He's saying I chose him and he's a devil. The reason he chose him is apparently to show us that it really starts with faith. Oh, Judas is very upset about not giving the, the, the ink, ink nard for the, for, for the poor. He's really upset that we didn't sell that perfume and give, give it to the poor because he handles the money box. See, Judas is, um, <laughs> Judas is, is a, a study for us and there's a difference between going through motions and believing in the one who has called you and trusting him no matter what. And so at the end of the, the many that, that walked away, they withdrew and weren't walking with him anymore. This isn't a test of, well, well, you see, American Christians are just believing, but they're not really, they're not really doing. Those that walked away, if, if they weren't believers, the, the test was demonstrated. They weren't believing in Jesus Christ, even though in that context, we have that some had, many had believed, and then they didn't, and he challenged them to, to continue because they weren't yet free. The truth will set you free. Anyway, that's John 6. For this, because of this, many withdrew of his disciples went away and no longer with him were walking. I think when John talks about walking, it's a, it's a pretty consistent theme. And there's two different ways you can walk in John's writing. And I want to say there's a kind of a theology that's developed a way to think about life. There's walking in the light and there's walking in darkness. The two ways. Let's demonstrate that. Let's look at that through the Gospel of John. John 1, 4. John chapter 1, where he starts discussing this. We'll touch on the Christian spiritual life when we get to instructions for the church in 1 John chapter 1. But it's a very consistent theme in John's writings. John 1, in his prologue, in his introduction to his Gospel. In the Lord Jesus Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. Some of you have that memorized. But in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. That is a statement of Psalm 2. That is a statement of the war that rages. And I started with, hey, we represent the good news, but it's not good news that we're at war. It's good news that we belong to the victor. But it is a war and it hurts. And here's the way it hurts. The darkness likes to be dark, and it is offended when the light shines into it. And a little bit of light and a whole lot of darkness gets swallowed up. You can't see it. But it doesn't really take that much light to be seen a long way off in a very dark place like Connecticut. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Or understand it, and I think that's a double entendre by John. He means both, like born again, born from above in John 3. This light and dark is the issue. And I believe I can say something else about light. The reason the dark is bad is not because it's uh, color or there's bad guys in the dark or the freaks come out at night or any of that stuff. The reason the dark is bad is because you can't see. You can't know where you're going and you can't get anything done and there's no time, there's no occasion for work because you can't see and it's dangerous because of the inability to see. This is the problem with darkness, I believe, and why we call it illumination. It is ignorance. It is a lack of knowledge. It is a lack of perception and discernment. And this problem of darkness as a metaphor for the war against God is the failure to know God on his terms. It is also 
wisdom, light, and folly, darkness. The ignorance of God. These are interchangeable or related concepts, I believe. The light is good because you know the God who has opened up the darkness to reveal himself. And so what used to be something I couldn't have access to, was covered and shrouded in darkness, is now open for me to know and to receive and to understand. This gets into Christian epistemology, how we know by faith we understand. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 on Sunday. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, you can spend all day thinking about what John means by those words. The life is a relationship with him that requires truly knowing him. And this is Jesus' prayer. Sanctify them with your truth, for your word is truth. And this is where the Christian spiritual life, or the walk by, by the Spirit in the word of God, applying it and learning it, applying it in the power that God gives us in the Holy Spirit's power, that this intersects with walking in the light. We're walking in true knowledge of God that he gives us by his revelation, that we enslaved to this world system in darkness have no access to unless he breaks through and lets us know. And this is the heroic work of the incarnation. This is why we're so excited about Jesus being the light of men, that everybody's enslaved to the flesh. Everybody's subjugated by the world, Satan's system. Everybody's deceived. He's deceived the nations. And there is a veil over the hearts of the, of the un, unbelieving, that they can't receive the gospel, they can't understand, they can't welcome. And Jesus Christ has broken through the darkness. He's the light of men. It's a, it's a beautiful thought. Now, it's a warlike thought. It's a spear of light stabbing into a darkness that doesn't want it to be there. It's offensive. When we say offensive, Let's think about it. There's offensive and there's defensive, right? Jesus didn't come in as the underdog. He was born of a virgin, little girl, young woman, very young woman. He was born to peasants. He, you know, not, not wealthy and mighty in the world, okay? But he's still extremely offensive by showing up on enemy territory to liberate the enemy's slave class. But that's what we're talking about when he's the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now here's the strange thing about the darkness as compared to the world. The people that are deceived that there's a veil over their hearts, that that's the unbelieving world, they're minions and, and, and useful servants of the enemy of God. They're the mission. They're not the enemy, but the world system that dominates them and has them working for it is the enemy. And it's, it's a work of God whenever someone breaks free. This is, um, this is one of our favorites, Colossians 1.13. Speaking of God the Father as the Savior, you know Colossians 1.13? He rescued us. Ruamai, he rescued us from the domain, dominion of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's God the Father rescued us from this enslavement to this evil order. That's the way it's portrayed by the Apostle Paul. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So now my identity is not in Adam and it's not in the world. It's in the kingdom of God's beloved son. In whom, in, whom, in Christ, whom we have the redemption the forgiveness of sins. And this thing of darkness and sin go hand in hand. And so it really is two ways. Wisdom and folly, light and darkness, righteousness and sin. These are all ways of describing fellowship with God or enmity with God. And these are all different facets of the war as it touches our lives. And I, it's right at this point of the discussion where I want to point out your blinders. We want to be like, uh, like Elisha's friend and look at all that army and then, then he prays and let, their, let, let his eyes be open to what, and then you see the myriads of God's angels and the chariots of fire and 
there are more with us than with them, even though it looks like an overwhelming army. This is the point where God doesn't let us see the minions of darkness arrayed against us, and he doesn't let us see the angels fighting for us. It's not our problem. I think we're like horses, those poor horses at the French Quarter in New Orleans. You know the horses I'm talking about? You gotta go to New Orleans sometime. Ride on the little horse-drawn carriage through the French Quarter as the cars are zipping by. These poor horses, they got blinders on. Those horses have no idea the massive uh, death surrounding them, except they hear it, but they don't see it. They know it's there, but they just have to just keep their eyes focused forward and just eat their oats, do their business when they need to, just do their job, and they don't get to see all the craziness of New Orleans around them. They're just dragging poor tourists around the French Quarter. That's, that's kind of how we are. There's a whole world, of, a, a universe of things going on that we can only imagine. But we're victorious, and uh, your access to understanding these things really is the Word of God. In John chapter 3, we hear about this light and darkness again when the Lord Jesus, by night, is having a conversation with the cowardly Nicodemus. Cowardly because, well, I shouldn't say cowardly. He is uh, in a position as a member of the Sanhedrin where he should not be consorting with the enemy. But he is becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's having this awesome historic conversation, this remarkable interchange about being born again. I'll summarize the conversation that Jesus has with this teacher in Israel who should know the scriptures very well, the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament very well. And, and Nicodemus asks Jesus about being born of the Spirit. How can these things be? How can it be that you would be born spiritually, regenerate by the third person of the Trinity, by the Holy Spirit? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? That's John 3.10. And Jesus said, we speak what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you the earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so, see, he's getting to the conversation point where he's identifying himself for Nicodemus to understand. You know because of the source that's telling you. And this is a constant theme in John. We know because Jesus is telling us. And what you have to do with that is believe what he says. It's your job. It's your responsibility to believe it. No one has ascended to heaven, but he, Jesus, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Huh? Numbers 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, a reference to the coming, inevitable, and most necessary crucifixion of Christ where the serpent in the wilderness is a type, is a, is a picture, a prophecy of what Jesus would have to do to hang between heaven and earth, where we would have to look at him to be healed and believe in him as our Savior. And then Jesus says, I must be lifted up so that, verse 15, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God loved the world this way. For God loved the world this way. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God, that's the father, did not send the son into the world to judge the world but so that the world may be saved through him. This is the cross before the crown. There's coming a judging function of the, of the son. We've read in Psalm 2. But this is my mission right now. I've come to save just like the serpent in the wilderness, to, by being crucified. He's telling Nicodemus what is going to happen, what's going to, to ultimately happen at the conclusion of his ministry. And then verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And why is he judged? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I don't understand every word of Scripture, but I think I understand John 3.18. The basis for judgment will be what you do about Jesus Christ. The basis for judgment will be what do we do with the claim of Jesus Christ? He who believes in him will not perish, but he who doesn't believe, he's already been judged because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And now verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world 
And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. See, the darkness is offended by the coming of the light. Don't you know the program? We are in darkness. This is not how we do it, bringing light into here. That is very offensive. We all have been living our entire lives without any problem, looking left and right, darkness on the left, darkness on the right, darkness down the center, darkness it is. And here you come with your light. We love the darkness. We love our consensus. I find from places like John 3, 19, and the, the course of this world and the way the deception of Satan has worked through all the sons of disobedience, I find that when I'm agreeing with the consensus about things that take a lot of speculation and a little bit of faith, when I find myself agreeing with the consensus, I'm probably failing to properly doubt the wiles of the devil. Things like if we make the, the earth a little bit warmer, then that kills us. I'm suspicious of that based on the way plants do better when it's warmer. And then we get more oxygen and everybody's happy. Um, when there's a consensus view that says something like, Israel is an evil apartheid state and the poor Arabs that live there are really oppressed. And then when you do the numbers and the math and you actually look at it and say, okay, Arabs that live in the Israeli state are better off, better treated before the law than in any Arab state because it's a democratic state. And it's the only one like it in the Middle East. That they're better treated, and, but, the, but the world consensus is that Israel is an apartheid state oppressing the Arabs. I'm going with um, the benefit of doubt. I think I need to doubt what the consensus is saying because I need to look at that again and ask some questions. See, I can show you a few places where this deception about the gospel spreads to other things because Satan has an agenda that is both opposed to the gospel and to Israel in that example. But um, I I learned in John 3.19 to doubt the world because it's reasoning from darkness. And the men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is the righteous are as bold as a lion. When you are righteous and carrying out the works of righteousness, you don't care who sees it. In fact, let's, yeah, shine the light. But when you're sneakily getting away with oppression or sin that hurts you or others because you're feeding the lust of the flesh, of course you want to hide. And that's part of the darkness. It has to do with being out in the open, being visible. Let's skip over to John chapter 9. Night and day, light and dark, or day, dark and light, John 9, 4. You have an interesting philosophical question about God's judgment and what we can know about it. You have a little miniature book of Job right here in this little paragraph. You can't know. Don't speculate. That's the answer. I have had people all through my life try to speculate about this or that thing that happened. But right here, let's listen to the words of Jesus Christ. As, as Jesus passed by, saw a man blind from birth. It's verse 1. And his disciples asked him that age-old question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? What an awful thing to be born blind. What a horrible condition to find yourself helpless. It would be be unthinkable. It would be unthinkable to go blind after being sighted. But you would at least have the memory of the things that you had seen. You'd seen your mother. You'd seen, you know, a beautiful sunrise. We actually... Saw the sun today. (laughs) In the summer that wasn't. (laughs) It'd be horrible. But but Jesus says, wrong. (laughs) Why are you talking about bread? (laughs) I'm talking about the Pharisees. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Oh, Let me put a little bumper sticker on that verse. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's about God. So connect the things like being born blind back to him. We must work 
the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. When do you work? In the daytime, because there's light you can see. Carpenters working at night. That's not a good guild. The night carpenters, the tables are all crooked. The buildings are all falling over on people because you can't see to work. Think about before flashlights and electricity. So you can't see, and that's the point. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the disciples are wondering about this man's sin, and Jesus is putting them back on mission. We have work to do. And uh, the work that I'm about to do with this man is verse 11. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. The man receives the sight, and that's the work that Jesus came uh, and he's referring to that he has to do. So this blind man that didn't see Jesus obeys Jesus' command and by Jesus' work is healed. And he is the light. And so that, that's the point is part of this, this issue with the light is we have work to do. In uh, John 12, if you skip over to John chapter 12 in your Bible. Yeah, that, the, that one, John chapter 12. He says, in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he talks about loving life so you lose it and hating life in this world to keep it for eternal life. To, in other words, give yourself to God. If anyone serves me, in verse 26, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And that is a clear call to discipleship. This is the summary message of discipleship, is that you need to trust your, entrust your entire life to God because his version of your life is infinitely better than your version. And so living your life for yourself in the world is the alternative to this glory that he's talking about. So in verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. Why? He's going to suffer. It's going to hurt. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it was for this purpose that I came to this hour. He is the illustration of what we're talking about, of letting the hard thing be the hard thing because God has something glorious on the other side of it. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. We don't have this. I don't think we have this in the other gospels. This one. And he said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that he had had thundered. It gives you an idea about what it sounds like when God speaks forth from heaven. People said that sounded like thunder. I once had someone tell me that they were absolutely convinced that God spoke through a woman's voice. I mean, the, with the voice of a woman, they heard a voice and it was a woman's voice. Uh, no, thunder. You <laughs> it would be a very powerful, uh, thunderous voice um, in this part of the story. Others, others were saying an angel has spoken to him and Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's Satan. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die, to be lifted up. The crowd then answered him, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Apparently the crowd understood there's a crucifixion that I'm talking about. I must be lifted up. And so they know that means he's leaving. How can you say you must go to the cross if you're the Messiah who resides forever? It's a good question. I mean, that's a Second Samuel chapter seven verse fourteen problem. We've got to have a forever king on a forever throne. How can this be? His goings forth are from eternity, and, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. How is this eternal being going to go away? Well, that's a great question. Did you read Psalm or Isaiah fifty three? Have you read Psalm twenty two? Did did you not watch? that there's more than the, the crown, there's the cross. 
Jesus answered and said, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. See, all these different aspects of light are being brought out. You can work in the light. You can't work in darkness. You're useful. There's the, and the, the light is the revelation of God through the Son of God. And there's belief. There's your reaction to this revelation as you believe it. The sons of the thing have the quality of the thing. That's important in Hebrew thought. The son of that is the essence of that. The son of hell is going to hell. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And this fulfilled Isaiah chapter 6. Or sorry, Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the tragic reaction of the darkness to the revelation of the light. While you have the light, Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. While you have the Lord Jesus Christ present with you, trust him, believe in him so that you can become sons of God with him. It's the gospel. And they rejected it. In John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. It's a multifaceted portrayal. It's a many things going on with light and darkness. But one thing that I want to hit on is that um, it has to do with God's revelation. What's being especially revealed is his righteousness, light. And what you and I are supposed to do is walk in it, live it, act like you're sons of the light, heirs, sons and daughters. Which takes us to uh, my real target, If you'll turn to John chapter 8. Uh-oh. John chapter 8. Are you going to go through, through the woman caught in adultery at the Feast of Booths? Or are you going to keep... No, John eight twelve. Let's go to John chapter 8, verse Let me do a little historical background for you. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's during or at the conclusion of this work. It is uh, at the women's um, courtyard, or the it's also called the, um, the treasury. There's a special ritual ceremony that the rabbis have told us was going on. You don't find it in the scriptures, but it is something the rabbis tell us in the Mishnah. And it is a very exciting and festive time with a lot of light and illumination at nighttime. It is a big party. And where apparently Jesus is teaching is the location where they've all had a great deal of illumination. In the Mishnah, uh, let me read just a little bit of what it says. I never thought I'd do that to you, did you? I won't read it in, um, I'll read it in English. at the end of the first festival day of the, of the festival, that's the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, the priests and Levites went down to the women's courtyard. It's also in, the, in this passage called the Armory, same place in the temple. And there they made a major enactment of putting men below and women above. So there's these two levels that you can uh, show something on. So women are up above. And there were golden candle holders there with four gold bowls on their tops and four ladders for each candlestick. Four young priests with jars of oil containing 120 logs or something to burn. They would climb up the ladders and pour the oil into each bowl. And out of the worn out garments and girdles of the priests, they made wicks. With them, they lit the candlesticks. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem, which is a pretty big space in the dark. Not a courtyard which was not lit up from the light of this house of lights, this place that was all of a sudden illuminated. So just imagine you live where there's no electricity, there's no illumination, not except these little bitty, little bitty oil lamps. You know, don't think Aladdin, think, uh, but these little clay lamps that burn olive oil and have wicks. And, 
Um, and that, there's just a little bit of illumination at nighttime. We know the Proverbs 31 lady has a lot of these going all the time because she doesn't sleep. She gets up while it's dark. She goes to bed, you know, after everyone else. She's working late through the night, right? Um, but, but imagine it's always dark, but then at this party, and we're about to hear about the choir in a second, and the, big, the music that's going on, there's this massive illumination which cheers everyone. And it's, it's something we've all experienced uh, around Christmas time, maybe, when you go see something that's very lit up at, at a party or a festival. The pious men and wonder workers, I don't know what the underlying Aramaic there is, but would dance before them with flaming torches in their hand. They would sing before them songs and praises, and the Levites, beyond counting, played on harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, especially trumpets, and mu- other musical instruments, standing as they played on the 15 steps, which go down from the Israelites' court into the women's court, corresponding to the 15 songs of ascents that are in the book of Psalms. On these, the Levites stand with their instruments and sing their song, and two priests stood at the upper gate, which goes down from the Israelites' court to the women's court with two trumpets in their hands. And when the rooster crowed, they sound, sounded a sustained, a quavering, and a sustained note on the shofar. That's what they mean by trumpet. And they got, out to, got to the 10th step. They sounded another sustained, then quavering, then sustained blast on the shofar. So there's this whole ritual with this party going on where they're singing the Psalms of Ascents. They're uh, playing um, the shofar uh, in, in this... Um, almost warlike way to, uh, to blow special oca- for special occasions in temple worship. They went on sounding the shofar in a sustained blast until they reached the gate which leads out to the east. And they, when they reached the gate which goes out toward the east, they turned around toward the west and they said, now this is really interesting in the tradition. Listen to it. Listen to the paganism that's met with, with Yahweh's and with the worship of God. Listen to it. They said, our fathers who were in this place turned with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east and they worshiped the sun. S-U-N, toward the east. That's Baalism. Baal is the sun. Apollo, Thor, the sun. Worship, the, all the world worships the sun. The Aztecs, the Mayans, their little temple, it's sun worship, all right? The, the paganism that we've been dealing with all through the scriptures with Canaanites is sun worship. But then listen to what they say. Our fathers did this sun worship. They turned their backs to the temple and they worshiped the sun. But as to us, our eyes are to the Lord. And then Rabbi Yudah says, they said it a second time, we belong to the Lord, our eyes are toward the Lord. And so thankfully, the rabbis have tr- re- retained some of the tradition of some of these things that seem to be going on in the second temple period. See, the, before we were kicked out of the land uh, with Nebuchadnezzar under the, the promises of God in Leviticus 26 and the, and, the, and the discipline of Israel, before we were kicked out for idolatry, our fathers worshiped the son and rejected Yahweh. But we, having come out of that 70-year captivity and now we're back in the land, we're not doing that. We're only looking at you, Lord. That's the kind of thing that's going on in this, in this ritual. And so it's a very illuminated period. And if you could talk about anything about the experience that people had in Jesus' day in the Feast of Booze, they would talk about the light show. And that's the context in the story for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ego me, I am the light of the world. Ego me, I'm God. And as the revelation of God, I am the light of the world and I'm illuminating you and you can follow me and not walk in darkness. This is the moral darkness of God's enemy opposing him that we even heard the rabbis sing about in their rejection, in their rejection of paganism and their willingness to serve God. The summary verse will not be visited again in the context of light. It will just be exegeted through verse 58. We started with, before Abraham was, I am. John eight fifty eight. The light speaking and the darkness rejecting. Between verses 12 and 58, you have this awesome flow of dialogue, this awesome conversation between Jesus and those that are kind of believing him, but not sufficiently, not really who he is. They're, they're giving him ear, but they're not trusting him as their savior. And they're rejecting his offer. The Pharisee said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. See, I'm the light. The light is revealing the father. You can open your eyes and see how things really are. And that's his testimony. You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. And he said, 
Even if I do testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. I know something you don't know, and I'm the only place you can get it, and you need to listen. What I'm seeking to do in Christian spiritual life, looking at this concept of light and darkness to set us up for 1 John chapter 1 and the walk in the light, is to show you this is Christocentric and it is the life lived in occupation with Christ. The problem with these people is they didn't trust him. And if you don't start out with trust in Christ, then when he talks to you, you're not listening with the necessary ears of faith that can receive the riches of the inheritance of knowing God. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. That's what he said in John 13 or John 3, 17. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true for I'm not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written about the testimony of two, the two men is true, that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Jesus' mission is to reveal the Father. He's to connect the world with God. He is the mediator who brings us to God. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is offering these people the universe because they're gonna have a relationship with the God of the universe. And the tragedy is they hate him for it. So they were saying, where's your father? Now that's the first time they ask about his dad. The second time they're going to say, well, we weren't born of fornication because they're going to say, we know your dad is Joseph and he's not really your dad. Where's your father? He said, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would, knew my, you would know my father also. This is a very horrible thing to say if it's true. I mean, it's a horrible truth about these people who are the custodians of the word of God so that they would know God, their father, but they don't. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. (laughs) What an offensive thing he just said to them. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What an offensive thing. The light comes into the darkness and just says, here's the, I'm gonna prophesy about your destiny. You're gonna die in your sin because you don't get salvation from me. And by the way, where, where Jesus is going is the only place anybody really wants to be because the alternative is apparently eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. He was saying to them, you are from below. I'm from above. <laughs> You're of this world and I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Ego a me, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? <laughs> I just told you, ego a me. And he's going to do it at the end in John eight fifty we'll, we'll cover this some more. But it's, I just want to illustrate that it's really a simple thing. It's complex in its, in, in its detail, but it's simple. There's two boxes. There's the light and the darkness. And the only aspect of light, the only way you and I can grab hold of the light is through Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world. And you have to listen. You have to believe him. And you have to, you have to uh, believe that what he says is true. So they were saying to him, who are you? And he said, what have, you, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak into the world. They did not realize that he'd been speaking to them about God the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. That sounds good. So Jesus said, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, okay, they, let, tell us some more. If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I don't think that these people are free yet. 
Usually when John says believe, there's live that comes with it, but they're not free yet. So um, this is not the place you go to prove that we're saved by faith and works. We're saying they haven't believed sufficiently. They don't have the sufficient understanding of what he's offering. And that's demonstrated in what follows. They answered him and said, we're Abraham's ascendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Because see, the darkness is okay a little bit with the light, but as long as I get to have it my way, nope, you're gonna have to let God be God and tell you how it is. We're not enslaved. We have Abraham as our father. We're, we're privileged. No, you're enslaved to the darkness. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's seed, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. These people don't believe in him like we mean. (laughs) They're trying to kill him. I speak the things which I've seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things that you heard from your father. How offensive can Jesus get? Right? We have Abraham for our father. Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, then act like it. Do the deeds of Abraham. But as as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. Abraham didn't try to kill uh, people that came to him with the word of God. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father who is God. They're attacking Jesus credentials as a legitimate person. They're saying that he is born of fornication. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God for I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. See, that's a beautiful thing to remember about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's here on the orders of God the Father to do the will of God the Father, and that's why he's doing what he does. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You're of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, his own, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you believe me? not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. See, there's a heavy dose of a portrait of the darkness. They haven't embraced the light. And so there's a tragic outcome. The Jews answered and said to him, we do, not, do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And they said, now we know that you have a demon. It's the same thing as John 6, where he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You got to take him on faith and try to understand how he means it. Now you'll never die. Oh, wow. Now we know you're crazy. See, it's a test. He's, He's further revealing to further convict them by their own rejection. The prophets die too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? If you're, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. I love to read this passage. I just got to finish. I'm sorry, but I love reading this passage because I, I can think through the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ in this tense moment and follow the reasoning. It's just so straightforward, but it's also very cutting. It's good news, but it's bad news for the darkness. The good news is bad news for the darkness. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, I'm done with you. (laughs) I'm finished with this conversation. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. He ninja'd out. He just kind of disappeared. And 
there was probably a pretty big crowd and everybody was dressed in earth tones and you could kind of blend in. Have you seen a guy in earth tones with a beard? Are you kidding? (laughs) That's kind of what happened. This extended discourse from the Lord Jesus Christ in John really six, seven, and eight about the light and the darkness um, paints the picture of the fight that we're in. What's the challenge? What's the, what's the takeaway here? Well, when John, when John in 1 John says, walk in the light as he himself is in the light, begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ that takes him on faith and continues to take him on faith. And it'll be challenging, as you all know. But this is um, what it means to have fellowship with God. It's to listen to what he says and believe it. And the world hates it, and it will hate it, and that's gonna hurt. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, clarity of the scriptures, for the willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ never to hedge, but to just do your will and to be pleased that, uh, that even if the world rejected him, he was pleasing to you. And we ask that we would constantly look at him in this model and um, represent him this way. Father, we don't understand everything uh, about you. We don't understand um, everything even that you've said, but we're seeking understanding through faith and uh, ask that you would continue to illuminate our hearts to see this distinction between righteousness and life and light, which is knowing you through your Son, and darkness, which is any and every alternative. In Christ's name we pray, amen.